Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and this is Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. We're continuing our series today, The Beginning of Jesus' Passion, with a message titled, Jesus and the Temple. So turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 21, verses 12 to 22, as we join Dr. Newfeld now. Those of you who know the context of the book of Jeremiah will immediately agree that the book is, well, it's a book of pathos, of passion. After years of warning and after years of Israel not listening, judgment was at hand. God was going to destroy the city of Jerusalem, burn the temple to the ground, transfer the entire population into exile, into Babylon, and that's the context of the book. And Jeremiah is the weeping prophet. He's weeping because he loves the people of Israel. He's also weeping because he sees their rebellion, and he weeps because he knows that destruction is at hand. A very telling chapter in that book is chapter 7. It's a chapter that happens before the destruction of the city and the destruction of the temple. So I'm reading Jeremiah 7, 1 to 4. The word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord, stand in the gate of the Lord's house, that's a temple, and proclaim there this word and say, hear the word of the Lord, all you men of Judah who enter these gates to worship the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, amend your ways and your deeds, and I will let you dwell in this place. Do not trust in deceptive words. This is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. See, people were saying, no matter how we act, God won't destroy the temple. It's his dwelling place. And Jeremiah calls those words deceptive. You're being deceived. God's going to burn this house to the ground. You know, in a very real way, Jesus cleansing the temple and then the cursing of the fig tree. We're going to see Jesus acting like Jeremiah. So let's read a first part of our passage, and that's Matthew chapter 21, verses 12 to 13. And Jesus entered the temple and drove out all who sold and bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. He said to them, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you make it a den of robbers. Let's put it in context. It's Monday morning. Jesus, on the day before, has entered into Jerusalem. He's been riding on a donkey, deliberately fulfilling the prophecy of Zechariah 9, verse 9. He's letting the city know that he is the long-awaited Messiah. He's entered the city to the cries of, Hosanna to the son of David. And he's created a stir, and more than a stir. The Romans will have noticed, but up till now, they're doing nothing. The chief priests, the leaders of Israel, have also noticed, and they're both furious as well as terrified. I mean, what if the Romans decide to crush this messianic rebellion? And as to what Jesus did after he rode into the city, well, we simply don't know. By all indications, he didn't do much. Mark says on that day, he entered the temple. He had a look around. I mean, was he planning the next day? Well, no doubt he was. But when he was done, he simply went out of the city, went to the place where he was staying, which was Bethany, about three kilometers out of the city. It's now Monday, and Jesus is back in the temple. Now, before answering what his act of driving out the merchants meant, let's see if we can picture it. The temple in Jerusalem was a massive complex. At the heart of the temple, at its very center, was the Holy of Holies, where the high priest alone was allowed to enter, and then on only one occasion a year, and that being the Day of Atonement. So the Holy of Holies symbolized the very dwelling place of God. And outside of that was the place of sacrifice. And then in a place where all sacrifices could be observed, 
was the court of Israel in which only Jewish men could participate. And outside of that was the court of women, and all of that was behind an enclosed wall. Now, what I've just described are the temple buildings or the temple complex. Surrounding that was a large open air, kind of like a large stone outdoor courtyard. Then surrounding that courtyard was a railing with a screen, and outside of that screen were a series of signs indicating that any Gentile who goes through the screen doors and approaches the temple will be immediately killed, and I'm assuming it will be by the temple police. Now, outside of that screen was the court of Gentiles, and so you get a picture. No Gentile would be able to get even close to the temple complex. They could see through a screen from some distance. That place outside the screen was called the court of Gentiles. But during Passover, sheep would have been sacrificed. The the Jewish historian Josephus estimated that some 250,000 sheep were sacrificed during Passover. But since no sheep could have a blemish, which includes any broken bone, no hint of a disease at any time, no small or large defect, all of these thousands of sheep would have to be inspected by the priests. And the rumor was around that the priests were often crooked. They were in league with the money changers, and they would reject anyone's private sacrifice. And so because you didn't want to drag your animal all the way to Jerusalem from Galilee, to be rejected by the crooked priests, while you simply went to the temple and you would buy approved animals. Even though that was convenient, it was pricey. So first you had to convert your money into temple money, and that's what the money changers were for. I mean, after all, you couldn't use filthy worldly money in the temple, and you'd get ripped off doing it. It was an incredibly poor rate of exchange. Then then you could go to the next station. You could buy temple animals, which were sold at greatly inflated prices. I mean, after all, the priests needed to inspect them, and they got to get paid. And so you're cheated not once but twice. Imagine the poor trying to do that. Mark mentions that the doves were on sale, and doves were required for the purification of women and the cleansing of those who had skin diseases. But it was also used by the poor who couldn't afford expensive sacrifices. But that would mean that the entire court of the Gentiles would be overrun with merchants during Passover. It became a virtual stockyard attached with a grand banking scheme. And then Jesus drove out all those who were involved in that scheme. He overturned the tables, the seats of the sellers. We know this is not the first time he did that. John says that he also did it in the first year of his ministry. But Matthew doesn't mention that account. He does mention this one. What's also missing in Matthew is the full quotation. Mark gives it in Mark eleven seventeen, where Jesus says that his house will be a house of prayer. And then he adds, for all nations. Uh, That is, since buying and selling was conducted in the court of the Gentiles, and since the Gentiles had no place of worship, that a door had been shut to them, as well as, you know, turning the temple into a place where business was replacing worship. But Matthew doesn't mention that part about the Gentiles, and I think his reason for omitting that is because he doesn't want us to get distracted on that point. He wants us to see another one. Jesus had arrived to point out that the temple had become a place of impurity and it was no longer a place of holiness, just as Jeremiah had done in his day. You know, a great many Bible teachers have called this event the cleansing of the temple. 
So they assume that Jesus entered into the temple as a reformer. But by now, we should be able to see that he was not intending to do that. I mean, if he was trying to cleanse the temple, well, quite frankly, he failed because within several hours of having done that, all the tables would have been set up again and business would have gone on as usual. Uh, What's more, if you read John's gospel, he tells us that something extremely similar did happen two years earlier, and so this is not the first time he did it, and he never ended the temple trade the first time, and he certainly didn't the second time. You see, Jesus didn't go into the temple as a reformer. He entered it as a prophet. He was announcing God's condemnation of the temple. He was announcing God's displeasure that the temple had degraded into business interests and the opportunity for commerce. You know, he was, as we will see in just a little while, announcing God's judgment upon the temple. We'll see that just a little later. But for now, let's make an application right here. What was true of the temple can be true of any local church or any place that gives the worshiper a chance to worship God. See, when church becomes a matter of, well, the size of the building or the grand nature of the music. I mean, look how well we sing or the power of influence in, you know, politics and so forth. When it's all about money and power rather than about worship and the humble seeking and finding God and finding forgiveness and reconciliation before the Father, when that's at stake, Jesus is announcing he's displeased. God demands worship. God shows displeasure when anything but anything replaces real, true worship, worship as is demanded, worship where our affections are engaged. You know, in the Middle Ages, the church sold the office of bishop to the highest bidder, and the church became a place to wield political power and influence. It can be that at any time. And lest we act like the people of Jeremiah's time, and we say, God would never allow this temple to be destroyed. Yeah, it's true. The universal church will never be destroyed, but a local one might if we defame the glory of God. We never get tired of hearing how listeners are impacted by the ministries of Back to the Bible Canada. It's always such an honor when you take the time to let us know the ways you've been encouraged. One Back to the Bible Canada listener recently wrote, I'm grateful for your encouraging and truthful teaching of God's Word. May God continue to richly bless this ministry. Susan, a listener of Laugh Again with Phil Calloway wrote, I would like to thank you from the bottom of my heart. There are so many days in which I need a boost of encouragement and an uplifting perspective on life. I love the way you approach each day with a smile. Thanks for making me laugh. If you'd like to share with us your spiritual journey and how it's been impacted through these ministries, don't hesitate to do so. Just give us a call at 1-800-663-2425 or visit us at backtothebible.ca. Jesus' words to the money changers is telling. You've made the temple into a den of robbers, he says. So think of that image. Den of robbers is a place where robbers go after they've stolen from their victims. And if I understand the image rightly, I think he's saying that the temple is a place 
where the religious authorities go in order to be safe from prosecution of their sordid acts. All the temple laws were in their favor. No one could touch them there. And Jesus says, I'm touching you now. Matthew 21, 14 to 17. And the blind and the lame came to him in the temple and he healed them. And when the chief priests and scribes saw the wonderful things that he did, and the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant, and they said to him, Do you hear what these are saying? And Jesus said to them, Yes. Have you never read out of the mouth of infants and nursing babies you have prepared praise? And leaving them, he went out of the city to Bethany and lodged there. What was happening on that day was quite a scene. You know, on the one hand, he was kicking over the tables of the money changers, and on the other hand, he was calling over the blind and the lame. He, as God's son, had come to his house, and he was showing compassion to the most needy. And we've got to notice the contrast between Jesus and the religious leaders. They were taking from the people. He's bringing compassion to the people. As the healings are taking place, notice what the children are calling him. Same thing that has been said on the previous day. As Jesus rode into Jerusalem, they were chanting then, Hosanna to the son of David. And now, as he's healing in the temple, the chant begins among the little ones. And of course, the chief priests and the scribes, well, they've already concluded that Jesus is definitely not the Messiah. And in fear that if this activity of Jesus finds legs and goes throughout Jerusalem, the Romans may take action. And they are now demanding that Jesus himself, who's already positioned himself as the Messiah, that he should renounce any claim to be Messiah on the spot. Tell the children to settle down. Jesus will have none of it. And by the way, if you don't know it, know it now. Jesus is the kind of man who's constantly quoting Scripture. And he quotes Scripture now. Psalm 8, verse 2, out of the mouth of babies and infants, you have established strength because of your foes to steal the enemy and the avenger. The psalm says that the enemies of God are raging, but God's children are praising. God's declaring that he's listening to the children and not to the enemies. While the religious leaders got that quote, it must have stunk. This is round one in their fight. Jesus against the religious leaders, and Jesus clearly won round one. Now, before we move on, would you notice verse 17? It says that Jesus left there, and he went out to the city, back to Bethany. And, and I make mention of that here because if you look at the next verse, it says, in the morning, that is, as he's returning back to the city. I'll read the entire text later, but please notice what appears to be the sequence in Matthew. In fact, let me take a wider view. In Matthew, after the triumphal entry on Sunday, just reading the text the way it stands, it appears that he immediately enters the temple and then chases out the money changers. See, even though Matthew doesn't say it happened on Sunday, you can be forgiven from thinking, from reading Matthew, that he must have chased out the money changers on Sunday. And then it seems like Jesus goes home, and then after that, on the next day, he curses the fig tree. And I mention that because Mark reads very differently. And Mark is very clear on this matter. It says, after the triumphal entry on Sunday, Jesus entered the temple, looked around, went home. Then the next day, he had the encounter with the fig tree and cursed it. And on that same day, Monday, he went to the temple and drove out the money changers. And all that happened on Monday. 
So what accounts for what at the outset seems like a contradiction between Matthew and Mark? Well, the answer is that Matthew arranges matters topically and Mark arranges matters chronologically. So with that in mind, go again to Matthew. Unless you had Mark, you wouldn't know that when Matthew says in verse 18, in the morning, that actually means in the morning of the day that Jesus drove the money changers out of the temple. But that is indeed what Matthew is saying. In the morning of that day, before he drove out the money changers, listen to what happened. So why does Matthew arrange matters in that way? Well, the answer has to do with the fact that Matthew's gospel is unique. Matthew knows that if you arrange the events of Jesus topically, there are things that you can see that you might not see if they were only arranged chronologically. Put things topically and you'll get an insight into what Jesus was doing. So go back to Matthew. What was Jesus doing when he drove the money changers out of the temple? And Matthew's saying, if you want to understand what he was up to, go back to what he did in the morning of that same day. So I'm reading Matthew 21, 18 to 22. In the morning, as he was returning to the city, he became hungry. And seeing a fig tree by the wayside, he went to it and found nothing on it, but only leaves. And he said to it, may no fruit ever come from you again. And the fig tree withered at once. And when the disciples saw it, they marveled, saying, How did the fig tree wither at once? And Jesus answered them, Truly I say to you, if you have faith and do not doubt, you will not only do what has been done to the fig tree, but even if you say to this mountain, Be taken up and thrown into the sea, it will happen. And whatever you ask in prayer, you will receive if you have faith. So let's cut to the chase. Why did Jesus curse a perfectly harmless fig tree so that it withered and died? And the answer, says Matthew, has to do with the money changers in the temple that he would encounter later that day. And there are those scholars who believe that the fig tree represents Israel. Great many do, and they're good Bible teachers. But I tend to disagree because I consider the context. The fig tree has nothing on it, only leaves. The temple is corrupt. The thing that people need more than anything else is a place of worship and a place where God will meet them and heal them and set them free and restore their fellowship with God. But there's nothing on that tree, only leaves. It's a covering, but fruit is lacking. See, the fig tree represents, I think, the temple. And Jesus says, in effect, to the temple, may no fruit come from you again. If we take that as a statement about the temple and then go forward to the fifth discourse that's found later in the chapters 24 and 25, we find that Jesus is announcing to his disciples as they gaze on the massive stones of the temple that not one stone is going to be left on another. Every single one of those temple stones is going to be thrown down. That is, when Jesus cursed the fig tree and it withered, it was a sign, a prefigurement. He was indicating that the corruption inside the temple, along with the leadership given to corrupt practices, all of that was cursed. It will wither at the very moment that Christ curses it. Jesus as Messiah, Lord of Israel and of the temple. Now, of course, there's another reason the temple will be removed. It's because once Jesus has been crucified, his once-for-all sacrifice for our sins necessitates that the temple sacrifice come to an end. However, that's not what Matthew is telling us here. Notice how Jesus answers the question of how the fig tree withered at once. He simply says, have faith in God. That is, you have to trust that God will do what I have demonstrated. 
Anyone who says to this mountain, be removed and cast into the sea, it will be done. Notice carefully that Jesus didn't say, if anyone says to any old mountain out there, be removed. Rather, he's quite specific, isn't he? If anyone says to this mountain, and I'm sure he's speaking about a very specific mountain, the Temple Mount. And furthermore, Jesus is the man of faith who has no doubt that what he says is going to happen. That temple is going to be removed. That mountain is going to be destroyed. If you go to Israel today, you'll see the very location where the temple once stood. There's a mosque today. It's called the Dome of the Rock. It's considered the third most holy site in Islam. And there's often talk about building a new temple, but up till now, it hasn't occurred because removing the Dome of the Rock, well, that would be equivalent to starting World War III. And the point I'm trying to make is simply this. Until now, God has so designed matters that no temple would be permitted to be rebuilt. And it has done so because Christ cursed that location, a corrupt priesthood that would not celebrate their Messiah and would not sacrifice in purity. This brought an end to the temple. Jesus cursed it. I'm not here addressing the matter of, you know, whether there's going to be a future millennial temple. I leave that for another discussion. But clearly, Jesus came to Jerusalem on Palm Sunday as Messiah. And as Messiah, on the very next day, the first act he did was cancel the temple and establish that his sacrifice is our temple for all time. And to tell us that if we are to worship God, God demands purity and repentance of our sins and a heart that's devoted to him. Thanks so much, John. You know, when we think about the withering fig tree, many Bible scholars would suggest it uh, refers to Israel. But you take the minority stance and say it represents the temple. Why do you think that? Well, I don't think that, uh, you know, Jesus cursed Israel, and I've said that before. Uh, But even today, you know, there are a group of people from Israel who are genuinely saved, born-again believers. Um, Christ's witness continues to be heard. Uh, among the Jewish people. I don't think the Jewish people are cursed. However, if you go to the place where the temple once stood, on the Temple Mount, you'll find a mosque there. And uh, no one is building on that anytime soon. So, you know, I look at that and say, yes, he did curse the temple and its sacrifices, and he brought to an end all the need for uh, the sacrifices at that temple. So, I mean, that's my reason for coming there, and I guess I'm going to hold to it. Thanks so much, John. And remember to join us again tomorrow as we continue our series, The Beginning of Jesus' Passion, right here on Back to the Bible Canada, Bible teaching you can trust. The Back to the Bible Canada Israel experience is a trip like no other. And I'm not the only one who thinks so. A supporter who attended our most recent trip said, listening to Pastor John teach the Bible while looking and breathing the air where the events he speaks about may have actually happened puts doubts of the authenticity of the Bible to rest. So make plans to join an intimate group of spiritual pilgrims this coming spring from April 16th to the 24th, 2023 and consider the optional Jordan extension from April 24th to the 29th. Join us in the Holy Land with on-location teaching from Dr. John Newfeld and wonderful evenings of entertainment with Laugh Again's Phil Calloway 
and very special musical guest, Amanda Stott. For more information, the trip itinerary, or registration forms, call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca.